You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. Before we get into the show today, just wanted to thank all of our listeners. You know, we really do appreciate you, and it's because of you that we've had such tremendous growth with the show. Also, thanks to all y'all who have submitted questions that you want asked and answered from our millionaire guests, and those who have written in various suggestions. We're going to start incorporating some of those in, in future episodes. We've got some rapid-fire questions that are going to be incorporated in some future interviews throughout the summer, and we've got a lot of exciting things planned for the show. So... Stay tuned for all that. We also appreciate it if you leave us a review on iTunes. If you like the show, it kind of helps us get the word out. Um, and just wanted to, to read a recent interview. It says, great show. Millionaire status is for the masses. I love listening to Jason Clark interviewing everyday millionaires. I'm a huge fan of Thomas Stanley's work on The Millionaire Next Door. And I feel like I'm listening to a future chapters of the book with each interview. So again, kind of going back to our goal, that's that's our goal. That's what we're trying to, to do is to tell the story of everyday millionaires. So please feel free to leave us a comment. We greatly appreciate it. Also, if you're looking for a multifamily investment opportunities, uh, we're looking to raise money for another deal. It's kind of in the process in both the southwest and in the northeast region. So if you're interested there, please reach out. We'd love to have you. We'd love to talk to you, to connect with you. Uh, we love meeting any of our listeners. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. So on today's guest interview, we have the frugal professor. And this is a bit of an interesting interview because he is not a millionaire, um, but rather has a net worth of about 500K. Some of you listeners have been very interested in hearing somebody that isn't at millionaire status, but is is working and growing to get there. And so that was our goal with this interview, to kind of talk to him and and see what he's doing to get to that millionaire status and then track him through the years and see how his investments and portfolio allocation has changed. So like I said, he has a current net worth of about 500K. He has five kids. He has an MBA and a PhD in finance and now teaches full-time as a professor. He gives three pieces of advice for new new, uh, college graduates. His first being spend less than you earn. The second, learn the tax code and use it to your benefit. The third, invest the savings wisely. And then he also talks about tracking your income and spending and how how important that is. He primarily invests in index funds and also has uh, money in his primary residence. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with the frugal professor. All right, welcome to the Millionaires and Build podcast. Today on the show, we've got the frugal professor. Do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you are up to now? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, I guess to condense uh, 36 years of life into a minute, um, grew up in California, went to school out in Utah, studied engineering, Um, did that for about five years. I did a, a a mission, uh, in between for two years in South America, which kind of shaped my, my view of the world and specifically, uh, kind of learned that, uh, you know, happiness isn't super correlated with money. Uh, so that kind of transformed my way of thinking about the world. Um, but I, I wrapped up, uh, my engineering degree, got a, uh, internship and then a full-time job offer at a kind of fortune 25 engineering firm in the U S 
um, spent uh, about three years or uh, four years doing that, actually. I did an MBA uh, somewhere in between that. And then um, at, at some point, I got kind of relatively good with this money stuff and realized that I was living far below uh, my means uh, and managed to save up uh, a decent nest egg and decided to say, what the heck, uh, why not get a PhD with uh, three kids in, in tow? Uh, so um, embarked on a, a five-year hiatus from work um, and did a PhD in my early 30s. And uh, children four and five were born during that time and uh, exited the PhD program about a year and a half ago and got a job uh, teaching in a business school. So that's, uh, that's my life. Wow. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Uh, <laughs> so today, uh, markets dropped a bit, but, uh, you know, more or less, uh, 500 and let's say 25,000. Okay. And how, how is that divided? So, um, I get about, uh, 120,000 in home equity, uh, just pretty, pretty simple there. And then about 400,000 in, in equities, uh, or in investments, I should say, all of which are allocated towards equities. Uh, most of that, the vast majority is in uh, tax uh, deferred accounts. Uh, I got about uh, 300,000 in that. And then I have a bit in tax exempt accounts like Roths, um, about well, uh, close to 100,000 there and, and just a trivial amount in, in brokerage accounts uh, taxable. So um, yeah, what I what I really try to do is is uh, optimize my uh, tax liability. And in doing so, I just uh, really prioritize these tax deferred and tax exempt buckets before even considering putting a, a penny into these uh, taxable brokerage accounts. And is there a favorite fund or group of funds that you particularly like to invest in? So I'm I'm a huge fan of index funds. I think uh, you know, as as many of your uh, fellow uh, or my fellow guests have have indicated, they're kind of the the tried and true way of of maximizing your kind of return in the stock market. Um, you know, as as John Vogel says, you know, it's the way of investors of guaranteeing that they get the market return uh, for better or worse. Um, but in by kind of Investing in index funds as opposed to actively managed funds, um, you avoid what Vogel car calls the uh, tyranny of compound costs. And you know, if you do the the math, you know, on on these um, these tables, compound interest tables out 30, 40, 50 years, I mean, it's really staggering the amount uh, that a seemingly uh, trivial one percent uh, management fee can can really accrue to over time. So, um, yeah, my my uh, asset allocation is quite simple. I'm 70, 30 in uh, domestic uh, international uh, total uh, market index funds uh, and my employer offers uh, fidelity uh, so most of my wealth is there uh, and then there's there's uh, a decent chunk at at, um, at uh, vanguard as well uh, for my iras yeah and it's amazing how on the index funds how easy it is to invest now you know it's just so easy to log in and and, and buy whatever you want so when did you start really becoming interested in in personal finance and investing was that something you were taught at a young age or is that something you picked up on your own or how did that start yeah so i mean i i've always liked kind of accruing money um you know i, I grew up kind of uh, you know just having odd jobs and um you know never a newspaper route but uh you know i worked at a local golf course just picking up balls and vacuuming and stuff like that and, um you know so i i learned kind of to work at a young age um 
but you know, it wasn't until really in college that that I really got serious about personal finance. And and what prompted it was, um, you know, I, I had worked in engineering uh, in an internship for a few months. Um, you know, managed to save maybe about ten thousand dollars over that time period. And you know, I was coming back to to school as a senior in college uh, with a seemingly like large pot of money. And I talked to a friend of mine. I said, uh, what do I do with this, this $10,000? And I'll never forget it. We're, I think we we're skiing at the time. And he said, uh, well, you should put it in an index fund. And, and I was, um, right, I was kind of super senior, uh, fifth, fifth year senior. And I, I was kind of shocked that I never learned what an index fund was, uh, you know, being from, from engineering. So um, that kind of led me down a rabbit hole where I, I checked out a whole bunch of books from the library. Um, including uh, a bunch of Bogle's books and Bogle Heads books and Random Walk Down Wall Street and Four Pillars of Investing and um, Richest Man in, in Babylon and, and so on. And I, I really kind of got an education pretty quick on personal finance uh, during my fifth year of, uh, of undergrad. So um, it was then where, where I, I became aware of, of IRAs and Roth IRAs and, and kind of how they work. And um, and really, I'm 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 forever grateful for that kind of year of of my life where I just dedicated to reading uh, dozens and dozens of en- or of uh, investing books um, because you know the the way compound interest works is the sooner you start and and the higher rate of return you can get through lower fees, uh, kind of the more wealth you can accrue over time. And you know I'll just kind of point out that I, I fully acknowledge my net worth isn't all that impressive <laughs> as a mid thirties guy with uh, with five kids, but um, you know I. You know, you know, as you can see in the bio, I've I've kind of taken a a pretty extended uh, break from from uh, from the real world with with 12, 12 years of college under my belt. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's a pretty big investment in time, but uh, it's certainly paying dividends now. Yeah. So, do you plan to keep your your investment allocation, you know, how you have it now, or do you plan to get into real estate, or do you plan to get into small business or something else, or do you kind of just do you want to just keep it how it is? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a fan of keeping it simple. You know, if you look at kind of historical equity returns, um, you know, that what they call the the risk premium, the the difference between the the market return and risk free rate is something in, in the neighborhood of seven and a half percent. So if if kind of what what history is telling me is that if I sit in my underwear and do nothing all day uh, and exert zero effort or intelligence on my part and simply just leave money in index funds over, over extended periods of time, uh, that that will yield a, a pretty decent return. Um, and uh, with with that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty content. Um, you know, I'm not naive to, to extrapolate that into the future indefinitely. And I know certainly there's there's market turbulence that I've, I, I've certainly lived through, uh, you know, back in, in 08. Um, but, you know, over an extended period of time, I can't think of a better way of generating wealth than, um, than just the, the tried and true method of uh, just buying equities and, and, uh, and holding it for, for a period of decades. So, um, so as of today, you know, my, I, I have a decent amount of, of real estate exposure, right? Um, you know, about, I own a, a home about $400,000, right? That's the, the purchase price of the home. So I'm, I'm pretty heavily invested in real estate, uh, you know, kind of implicitly through, through my, my primary uh, home. But yeah, as of today, I don't really have intentions of kind of expanding into to other uh, real estate endeavors. Gotcha. So let me ask you, you have both a 529 plan and an HSA. 
maybe talk about those a little bit and, and when did you start them and, and maybe the strategy behind both of those? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I read a lot about, um, you know, different tax strategies and, and both of them are tax exempt in that you put tax after tax dollars in and, um, or sorry, I, I'm confusing that. Uh, so with a 529, you put after tax dollars in, it grows and uh, it's, um, you know, it's never taxed again. But with the HSA, you put pre-tax dollars in and, um, and it's never taxed as you use it on medical expenditures. Uh, so, so really, uh, the utilization of, of both the HSA and the 529 are simply recognizing that um, before putting any money in a taxable brokerage account, for example, uh, it's, it's awfully prudent to, to really maximize um, the tax advantage accounts. So um, I have this blog post that I wrote about, you know, shameless self-promotion, but, um, you know, in it, I kind of highlight a, a very clear hierarchy of, of how you should put each, you know, marginal dollar of savings. You know, your first dollar should should go, for example, to getting the, the 401k match at an employer. Um, you know, after you've, you've reached that, then you might think about retiring higher interest debt, uh, such as credit card debt or, or student loan debt. And, and, and there's just kind of nice progression as you go filling up bucket to bucket to bucket. And eventually, um, for me at least, you know, the way I think is, is kind of optimal. You know, the HSA rigs very highly up there on kind of how you ought to, to uh, to prioritize these buckets, um, and then you know, as as you go down, uh, the way what I have in my blog is, um, you know, I could say I say you could either prepay your mortgage, uh, fund a five twenty nine account if you have kids, or dump money into a taxable brokerage account. So for me, um, I chose uh, to to do kind of a combination of at least the 529 and taxable brokerage. So, so my state in particular, uh, gives me a $10,000, uh, deduction, uh, for contributing to my 529 account. It saves me roughly $700 per year in state income taxes. Uh, so, so given that kind of pretty, pretty large incentive, I, I took my state up on it and maxed that out. And I intend to do so every year that I live here. Um, but then, you know, just circling back to that HSA account that you uh, that you asked about, I mean, that's really one of the biggest uh, wealth accumulation tools uh, that that I see out there. Um, it's it's far superior to, I mean, to anything else really, um, to a four hundred one k, to a Roth IRA, for example. And the reason being is that it's it's like triple tax advantage. So it's it's coming in pre federal, pre state, uh, you know, much like a four hundred one k, but it's also pre payroll tax. So you're not paying your six point two percent on on Social Security and the one point four five percent on Medicare on it. Um, and so it's tax advantage going in, it's pre-tax going in, and then it's it's pre-tax going out. So you know you spend hundred bucks on on um, you know on on a uh, copay, and uh, you know that that is uh, pre-tax money. So it's uh, a huge huge asset that that everyone should should be maxing out every year if they have a, a qualifying high deductible plan. Um, and then just to to kind of follow up on that is that there's this kind of well-known strategy within HSAs uh, that that is uh, highly documented on this Bogleheads forum that I highly recommend. Um, this says that, you know, if, if you have a high deductible plan and are maxing out this account, um, 
you know, let's say 7,000 per year, uh, plus or minus a couple hundred, uh, you max that out year over year over year. Uh, what you can do is you can invest that money and let it grow over time. And as you incur medical expenses throughout the year, um, what you do is you just pay out of pocket and not reimburse yourself. Um, and then you kind of collect your your receipts in a systematic manner, and it's easy to do so with an end of year statement. Um, and then eventually you're 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 letting those those HSA contributions grow kind of over an extended period of time, over decades, um, and then um, you could eventually reimburse yourself down the road. So there are kind of many many interesting articles written on that topic. Uh, my favorite is probably from the Mad Fientist uh, called Hack Your HSA, and I'd highly recommend that article to anyone interested. Yeah, I think that's all great advice. We wrote an article recently in Business Insider about a month ago where we talk about some of the advantages of the HSA and the triple tax benefits. So if someone's just starting out, you know, we talk about the 529, we talk about HSA, Roth IRAs, 401ks. What order do you think people should invest in? Where do the where do they prioritize? All right. I, I printed off that post. So <laughs> so so here it is. Um so so basically, you know, the way I the way I rank these things is is kind of step one is you want to dump in money into your 401k and get your company match. And why? Because it's idiotic to turn down free money. Why? I know from experience. Uh, when I was an intern at this Fortune 20 company, um, th- there was this HR woman kind of yapping about 401ks. I was a dumb undergrad. I didn't know anything about the stock market. I didn't know anything about 401ks. And she advised us as interns to, to opt out of the 401k because we were poor college students. You know, it was only afterwards where I realized the stupidity of what I had done. Um, it was only afterwards where I realized that I'd thrown per- throwing away 6% of my salary uh, by signing a form opting out of this 401k. So like, don't, you know, if, if you're a listener, you're just starting out, perhaps in your undergrad or just recently graduated. I mean, it's it's just idiotic to throw away this, this free money. So that's step one. I mean, step two, get out of any debt that's high interest, you know, high interest defined as anything north of 5%, say, uh, you know, step three, max out the HSA. And then kind of a, a little known trick is that you could also in conjunction with this HSA uh, max out what's known as the limited purpose FSA, which is uh, for eyeballs and teeth, as I understand it. So, you know, if you have kind of recurring optometry visits and, and eye kind of expenses with, with glasses and so on, you could use that for with your limited purpose FSA, you know, and, and as well as the teeth stuff. Um, so, so in that sense, you're kind of double dipping there. Uh, but, but, but that's, that's allowed so long as it's designated as what's called a limited purpose FSA. Um, am I good to keep going or do you have questions about it? Yeah, no, 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 go ahead. Yeah. So then, uh, so kind of step four, what, what I say is max out the 403B and 457. Um, if you happen to work for a public institution like I do, uh, you can have massive, massive, uh, you know, buckets to fill. So, so in a given year, I'm allowed to contribute. 18,500 now to a 403B, 18,500 to a 457. And then, you know, uh, that's on top of my my conventional 401a. So if if you know you're if you're a listener and and you work for a, a public school, for example, or university, um, you know, or presumably, um, you know, if you're a firefighter, you, you might also have access to this. Uh, you know, and any sort of public uh, employee, uh, you would have to look hard at these buckets and accounts available to you. And and you know, if if you're just getting started, I know this seems like gibberish, <laughs> um, but 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 you know. 
the math says, you know, this, these you know, seemingly arbitrary numbers, right? 457, 403B, 401A, 401K, 529. Like, I mean, these are just massive tax opportunities. Um, so, um, I mean, you know, I, I save in the neighborhood of $20,000 uh, per year in taxes just by being savvy with uh, with uh, these these buckets. So, I mean, it's it's hard to overstate uh, really the economic effect of, of maxing out these accounts properly and, and really um, prioritizing them correctly. So then what I have on, on my list here is, is maxing out the remainder of the 401k after your 401k kind of match, right? You want to max out the full 18 and a half thousand of that. And it's important to realize that um, that there is an eighteen and a half thousand dollar limit per year on that. That does not include the employer match. I know I was pretty confused about that when I first uh, started um, with that. Kind of some other trips or tricks down the line, uh, maxing out IRAs. Um, you know, you have to think hard about traditional versus Roth IRA. Uh, the same is true for kind of 401ks and 403bs. If if that option is available, you have to think hard about whether you want to do Roth or traditional. And um, kind of the, the rule of thumb is that if your tax rate is, is expected to be uh, lower, uh, you want to do traditional now, um, lower in retirement. You want to do traditional IRA now and exploit that kind of tax arbitrage there. Whereas if you think your tax rate is going to go up in retirement, you want to do Roths uh, now. Uh, but for most people who are working now and not going to be working in retirement, uh, what you do is you do traditional now. Um, and especially with this new tax law change where the standard deduction is, is essentially doubled um, to 24000 for married filing jointly, um, there are going to be huge buckets of tax-free money that's at the zero percent uh, marginal rate uh, that you could realize so if you could real if you could live on a pretty modest um, um, income or, or you know modest uh, spending requirements then you could conceivably have a zero percent marginal rate in retirement um, so you know I, I think all of this is is kind of biasing people towards choosing traditional now um, and then you know of course there are smart things you can do with IRAs if you make too much money to do a deductible traditional IRA you could do what's called a backdoor Roth IRA um, and you know there's just dozens and dozens of, of well um, well-written articles on, on the topic there especially on Bogleheads uh, that wiki uh, is, is a phenomenal uh, uh, resource for for people kind of trying to learn about investments and tax minimization and then kind of one one bucket that i i didn't really appreciate until later in life is you know my my step seven says uh before contributing to either a 529 or taxable brokerage or whatever uh think hard about making after-tax contributions to a 401k and um and this is kind of a, a little known and, and a little bit more complicated tax strategy, uh, but but what it says is it exploits this kind of loophole. Uh, the loophole is, you know, most of us are capped at eighteen and a half thousand for our four hundred one k contributions, um, but the government kind of contribution limit uh, for these accounts is fifty three thousand per year, and what you can do is in excess of this eighteen and a half thousand, you can get up to the fifty three thousand or so with after-tax money. And on my first job in engineering, I actually had this option, but I, I never for the life of me at, at the time could understand why someone would exploit that. But then uh, the, the way to f 
really orchestrate this or really really take advantage of this is upon leaving your company you convert that into a from a after-tax um, 401k uh, you convert that to a Roth IRA uh, much like a backdoor Roth contribution and this is known as what's called the mega backdoor Roth um, contribution and you know if, if you do it correctly uh, you can contribute essentially up to um, you know, 53,000 a year in a Roth IRA. It's just this phenomenal, phenomenal resource. And I mean, the what to, if you want to call up and I mean, the, the way to, to do it is to call up HR, ask if you can make after-tax contributions to a 401k. And then what really makes it lucrative is if your employer w- will offer what's called in-service withdrawals or distributions. And in that sense, you could then roll it over to a 401k uh, while you're still working there. Uh, sorry, roll it over to an IRA while you're still working there, um, and and you don't have to to wait for you to to sever ties with the company if if, uh, if that's available. So I've been ranting a while. Uh, do you have questions on that? Am I making any sense? Yeah, no, it's great. One one question I have. Let's just say somebody's in the situation where they get started super early. You know, maybe in their twenties or or thirties, and and they've done everything all along the way. Should they ever get worried that their balances potentially are going to get to the point where, you know, required minimum distributions when they hit 70 and a half are going to push them into tax brackets that they've never been in in their life, you know, or in their working life? Yeah, so so that's, I mean, that's a good question. I, I guess the, the counter argument is, you know, if, if an individual like that has such high balances, the the, the counter argument is they could just retire 10 to 20 to 30 years earlier and, and kind of uh, mitigate that problem. Um, but yeah, like, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I haven't given a whole lot of thought on RMDs. Um, though the one strategy I am mindful of is, you know, let's say, let's say tomorrow I have $2 million in a, you know, in 401k pre-tax accounts. Um, you know, let's say I retire at the age of 40, you know, I'll have essentially, you know, I it, when do RMDs kick in? Is it 70 and a half? Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm not an RMD expert. Okay. So, so right, right there you have right from, from 40 to 70 and a half, you have, you have 30 years of essentially these, uh, these Roth IRA, uh, conversions, right? So every year I can contribute, let's say 24,000 or more if I want to, right? Because, um, you know, I'm not limited to that standard deduction. I can convert in excess of that up to the 10 and 15% brackets. So, kind of when you take a weighted average of your tax rate over that that region, it's probably going to be south of 10% after accounting for the 0% region there. So, you know, I think there's some very, very smart things that that someone could do, um, you know, in order to, to, to mitigate that that problem. But, you know, I, I acknowledge that, that that it is a potential issue, but um, I don't know, it's, it's probably a good good problem to have, actually. Yeah, totally. So let's, let's change gears here for a second. Put, put on your professor hat. What what should the students of America be doing as they graduate in their first you know three to five years of their working life? Yeah, so um, I mean it, it's a fantastic question, and I guess if I look back at my former self and I think what would I have loved someone to smack me up the head and tell me? I mean, so so first off is that you know a huge contributor to your your wealth is going to be your your income, right? So so obviously you know. Get get 
a good degree that has decent job prospects and then work hard, right? You know, try to ascend the ladder. Um, you know, I don't know that I succeeded on any of those dimensions, but, you know, it's hard to dispute, you know, if you start a career making, you know, a, a good salary with, with good, you know, earnings uh, growth, uh, you're going to be much, much better off. But then kind of the, the second and probably more important aspect uh, to that piece of advice is, well, if you spend the entirety of your your big paycheck, you're going to be broke. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had colleagues, you know, at my engineering firm who are making, you know, of course, the same salary as me, because we're all, I'm sure, on a, on a very flat pay scale, um, who, who like, I never saw them out of credit card debt, you know, in, in my life there. You know, I, I knew these people for three, four years, and they were living paycheck to paycheck, making, you know, close to $100,000 a year. So, I mean, the, the corollary to, to getting a high income is... is you know, once you have the high income, uh, don't spend all of it because because you'll be broke and you'll be broke for life. Uh, so, um, you know, one, I, I guess, you know, that's just, uh, you know, it's just basic arithmetic. So uh, live below your means. And if you can live far below your means, then you'll be kind of well on your way to accumulating wealth. Um, and I, I guess kind of on that dimension, um, you know, it's, it's not rocket science to realize that if you can cut your cell phone by a hundred bucks a month, kind of indefinitely, uh, that that hundred dollars is going to accumulate every single month. And you know, the same could be true of housing expenses or car expenses or whatever. Uh, so, you know, if I were giving advice to young college students, it would be, uh, you know, really focus on these recurring expenses. And you know, I, I guess the other thing is. Um, you know, the other thing I would smack my, my former self on the head and say is, you know, you just spent four or five years getting an undergraduate degree, you know, living off of ramen and rice and beans, and you're pretty darn happy. Why? You know, it had nothing to do with your, your level of consumption, right? You know, like I was, I was pretty darn poor, probably spending, you know, 10000 a year at the time. Um, but, but I was happy because I had meaningful interactions with, with you know, roommates and friends and, and had a good social life. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard when, when you start your career and I guess kind of sever these social ties. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to maintain that same level of happiness, uh, and and a lot of us try to fill the void by by just filling our you know increasingly large houses and increasingly nice cars with stuff, and um, you know it just in order to get ahead in life, uh, the sooner you could break that cycle of kind of filling voids in your life with stuff and consumption, um, and and instead replacing it with kind of meaningful interactions and you know going out to, to a park and playing frisbee or whatever. Uh, I just think the the closer, I mean, the sooner people will be on the path to accumulating wealth and, and, you know, really finding happiness in life. Yeah, I think that's all, all great advice. So on your path for wealth accumulation and, and for happiness, what part has charitable giving played? In your yeah, life? I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a good question. Um, yeah. So, so at my church, we've, uh, historically tithed 10%. And, you know, that, that certainly there's, there is a, a great, uh, tension, right? Uh, the more you contribute to charity, the less you have in wealth. Uh, so that, you know, certainly, uh, has, has hurt, but, uh, you know, the, I guess the more you divorce yourself, um, from, uh, just the kind of the, the greed of, of hoarding cash, uh, the, the more you can kind of realize that, uh, that hoarding cash isn't what it's all about. So, yeah. And, and with that charitable giving, what are some, maybe some tax strategies in, in that field? Yeah. So, so that's a great question. And so for, for anyone 
with a charitable mindset, I, I guess, unfortunately, the, the tax, uh, <laughs> the, the 2018 tax law has kind of uh, squelched uh, charitable uh, contributions for, uh, for a reason. So, so anyway, um, going forward, the standard deduction for married filing jointly is $24,000. Uh, you're capped at your state and local taxes at $10,000. So that leaves uh, kind of $14,000 uh, for, I guess, mortgage interest and charitable contributions. So anything in excess of that, that 24K total uh, would go towards your itemized deductions. And uh, the way to be smart with charitable contributions is uh, to donate appreciated shares uh, to charity. So um, let's see. Uh, so let's say you, you buy Apple or, or whatever stock at 100, and let's say it goes up to 300 over time. So what you have is a cost basis of 100 and a unrealized capital gain of $200 for a total price of $300. So you can do what is kind of real tax savvy is you can dump that $300 stock off to a charity of your choice. And importantly, you don't sell the stock and then give the $300 to the charity. You give the actual stock itself to the charity. And many charities will accept these uh, you know, I think they're called in-kind transfers often, but you just dump the stock uh, to the charity. Um, and the alternative is you use a, um, what's it called? The charitable, uh, uh, the, the donor advice fund. So uh, uh, brokerages like Fidelity and, and, and Vanguard and so on, uh, they'll they'll accept these appreciated stocks as well. Um, and then they'll they'll actually cut a check to the institution if if they uh, if they don't do that, but um, if if they don't receive in kind uh, stock transfers. But anyway, if you go kind of back to our example of buying the hundred dollar stock, which then appreciates to three hundred dollars, um, if you think about the tax implications of this. Uh, you know, giving the stock to charity, you're getting a tax write-off. You're getting a deduction of three hundred dollars, um, and you're doing so without ever having to pay taxes on that two hundred dollar unrealized capital gain. I say unrealized because you didn't sell the stock. Um, that's what unrealized means. So you're dumping off these unrealized gains to, to charity, and in that sense, you can kind of transform a taxable brokerage account into a tax advantaged account uh, that essentially doesn't pay capital gains. So um, you know if you're if you're kind of savvy with, uh, if you care to optimize taxes, which I think you should, if you want to maximize your wealth, uh, this is a very kind of basic and obvious strategy. But I think it's one that's underutilized by uh, by people as they donate to charity. Yeah, I totally agree. And with the with the trust, if you if you you know give the money to that charitable trust, you can also invest uh, in the trust and then choose to elect when you want it to 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 be sent to your actual charity. So there's definitely some tax advantages behind that. So, yeah. So, oh, sorry. Just, just to interject. I mean, you know, there there are a few downsides with the donor advised funds. I think they charge, uh, is it a sixty basis point fee? I, I I forget what the the size of the fee is. You know, it's it's not super onerous, but but it's it's not nothing. Um, and then what else was I going to say? Is that I guess going forward after two thousand eighteen, uh, people who are donating charity would it would behoove them to to consider doubling up. Uh, contributions every other year, for example, uh, instead of doing uh, contributions every year. And that way they can kind of itemize one year, take the standard reduction another year and kind of uh, go back and forth like that. So so that's a strategy someone ought to think of if, if they're going to continue to donate to charity uh, in 2018 and beyond. Yep. Yep. I'm totally with you. I agree. So how are you and your wife going about teaching your kids uh, personal finance and kind of the value of, of living those three pieces 
that you talked about? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. Um, so the the thing I'm I guess proud of is, you know, we don't really give our kids allowances, but you know, for through birthdays and holidays, they they manage to scrounge up, you know, twenty dollars here and fifty dollars here from from family members. So um, so what I've managed to do is create a spreadsheet, and you know, I I. I um, I log all of their their income for for each kid, and you know every month I I uh, apply interest to their balance. So I think I give them like ten percent interest per year, um, which is what I I wish I could make uh, risk free, but <laughs> but any. But but anyway, like but but it's it's so nice because it empowers them to make financial decisions. So when we're at a store and they want a toy, um, it's it's never like begging us. Oh, can I have this toy, mom and dad? It's it's um, you know they say, oh, I like this toy. We say, okay, well, you have one hundred and fifty dollars in in your account. Uh, you know, you're welcome to buy it, but but that will kind of limit. I mean, first off, the amount of stuff you could buy in the future, um, and then second off, it, it limits the amount of interest you're you're making uh, month to month. And and my oldest daughter, who's eleven, I mean, she really gets this interest thing. I mean, she loves loves the idea of making money for nothing uh, just simply by loaning it to to me. Uh, so, I, I think you know that's that's uh, probably one of my my bigger parenting life hacks is. Um, you know, just just really empower your kids to make financial decisions. How by keeping Italia, how much money they have, and whenever they want want to make this impulse buy, um, you know, it's it's on them. And sooner or later, they'll learn that if they make too many of these impulsive buys, that um, that they'll have no money. I guess um, the counter argument is that I, I've worried I've created a bit of a monster, and that. You know, our, our kids have gotten pretty smart at, at money, and you know, we we uh, we shop at Costco often, like. Uh, quite often we live right next door to it and um you know my, my kids will, will will pool together resources and buy jelly beans for example like you know a whole bunch of jelly bellies for like eight bucks so it's less than three dollars a piece for them and they'll have like enough candy to rot their their teeth you know for for a month so i, I don't know if uh, if what i'm encouraging is is good or not but uh they're they're being really savvy with their their purchases awesome so You've done super well. You're on a great track. Where, 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 where do you go from here? What kind of goals do you have for the future? Is early retirement in the picture at all? Yeah. So, so where are we? I mean, we're kind of mid thirties. Uh, you know, certainly behind the curve relative to you know a lot of these blogging counterparts. Um, but you know, we're we're on a good path. We're saving you know close to seventy five percent of our, our net income. And, uh, you know, things, things are, are good on that dimension. So, you know, we're, we're making up for lost time there. Um, you know, as, as far as goals, you know, we're, we're basically just trying to maintain a, a normal standard of living, you know, um, you know, we were, we're living roughly the same standard of living we were, uh, during undergrad, you know, and through, through our engineering days and then grad school again, you know, as, as you know, we're just living a simple life and, and one that gives us a lot of pleasure and, and, and happiness. So uh, the, the current plan is to stay the course and, and watch the bank account uh, go up. Uh, hopefully we'll be, you know, at a million and a half in a, in a few years, uh, probably about five years out or six years out. Um, you know, at which point we could start having conversations about, um, you know, what our next steps are uh, from there. But, um, you know, I, I think having money in the bank and, and investments is, is a good problem to have. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm eager to, 
to hit those kind of milestones and then kind of reassess. But you know that my career is is, is great. You know, I I love teaching. It's it's really fulfilling. Um, but yeah, whether it makes sense to kind of transition to 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 something kind of you know a different role, um, you know that's that's certainly um, you know something I need I need to think about down the road. But um, but what I've learned in life, of course, is that that money and low kind of living expenses begets uh, kind of options and, and flexibility and. And yeah, we're we're trying to kind of stick on the path that's that's working reasonably well for us. Good stuff. The frugal professor with a net worth over half a million dollars. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.